one of the things that gives us hope in life is to realize that there is meaning and purpose in life and that life is linear. There is a point to which we are moving towards. And I think that's a large part of what's going on in Second Thessalonians. If you have your Bibles, take them with you and open up them to Second Thessalonians. It's in the last, like, fifth of your Bible. There's First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. And uh, it's a second letter that was written to a fairly new group of believers uh, with profound help and profound truth to them. We've been in it for three or four weeks, and our way here is to most often just pick a book of the Bible and work our way through it. Uh, That helps us to cover a lot of the whole counsel of God, but it also means that we deal with things that sometimes we find a little bit difficult to deal with. And so this morning is no different um, in that is there's been some joyous things to work through and we find some difficult things to face today. It's a love story in some ways, um, a love letter, I think, of Paul, the spiritual father to these believers. And as he begins the letter, if you were here with us, um, he's bragging about them. He's, he, he's so full of love and thankfulness for these saints, for these people He has demonstrated and uh, reminded them that they share the same Father, our God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. They share the same Lord. It's a mark of their redemption, uh, an evidence of their genuine faith together. And he says, not only are you those that are embraced by God and by the Lord, he says, but I see evidence that God is at work in you. He says, your faith is flourishing. It's growing. It's, it's fruiting, so to speak. And he says, not only is your faith flourishing, but your love is increasing. There's evidence that the God of love is at work in you, that uh, you are like him. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And so his love is being now perfected or shown in you as you love one another. And he says, on top of that, when you're suffering hard times, you don't turn tail and run. You don't say, I've got enough of this. I can't deal with this. God's abandoned me, so I'm going to abandon him. He says, there's this enduring perseverance that you have demonstrated. You're hanging in there. Even though life is difficult, even though you're facing trials of all kinds, you're hanging in there. And as you do that, you've still got a kingdom perspective. You you realize that God is a just God. He's working in you, but you know that he's preparing you for a kingdom to come. You're realizing that this world is not all there is. Your hope and your eyes is fixed on a kingdom to come. And so he's proud of these believers. He's thankful to God. He prays that a number of times. I I ought to give thanks to God always for what he's doing in your hearts and lives. It's a wonderful start to this letter. But I wonder if in part that as they are facing these difficult times that they're walking through, that they're maybe looking ahead and wondering, well, what's ahead? What's to come? Will this ever uh, end? What will come at the end? And so Paul then dives into, I think, some of the most difficult verses in the New Testament on judgment, and at least some of the most explicit words on judgment that will come at the end of the age. And we're going to land there for a little bit. He says, at the end of the age, Christ is going to be revealed to you, and he is going to repay those of you that have afflicted, those of you that don't know him, those of uh, you that uh, don't obey the gospel, and he is going to reward others. So he's going to come back to repay, to punish, and he's coming back to reward. And so this morning, we look at, a little, we look at the repay side of things. 
If you have your Bibles open, I'll read starting at verse five and we'll make it to verse 10. And that will be our focus this morning, the repayment side of the return of the Lord. Paul writes, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to, as us. So God, he's saying God is going to come back. He's going to repay and he's going to reward. And when will this take place? He says, well, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. He's reminding them that history is linear. He's reminding them that while they might face difficult times and affliction, that God is just. And at the end of this age, God will come back in Christ and he will judge the earth. It is an encouragement, I believe, to us as believers. It reminds us that God is a living God. He says to them that Christ is going to come back from heaven. Well, that's where Christ went when he ascended back into heaven. He, he, was, he was crucified. He was buried. God raised him from the dead. He walked on this earth for 40 days. At the end of that time, a few of the disciples went with Jesus. And as they were watching, he was taken up into heaven. And then the, the angels that were standing there said to him, well, what are you marveling at? In the same way that he is gone, he will return. And a little bit uh, of the first letter when Paul wrote to them, he marvels at the fact that they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying that your savior is a living savior. Your God is a living God. God is not dead. This is what marks the Christian hope out from all other hopes, from all other religions. We believe in a living God. We have proof that God was raised from the dead and we are waiting for him to come back from heaven and to usher us in to the new age to come. This is not stuff of fairy tale. This is stuff of reality. And so Paul is meaning to encourage these believers as they're going through some tough times right now to remember that there will come a point in time at which God will set all things right and will usher us in to the new heavens and the new earth. And he says, and we looked at this last week, we spent most of our time here, that that, that will take place when Jesus is revealed from heaven, when the revelation of Jesus at the end of this age, that means the unveiling, the removing of the cover, the pulling back of the veil. We will see Jesus for who he is. In his first coming, he came hidden. He came in poverty. He came incognito, so to speak. In his second coming, there will be no doubt that this is the Son of God. And this will come at the end of this age. As we come into this text, which is a text on what Jesus will do when he comes back, is in part, he will judge the earth. It's helpful for us to remind ourselves and to remember that almost all of the foundation for judgment comes from the very words of Jesus himself which I think is helpful for us to remember that, that Jesus spoke of the love of God, but Jesus also spoke of the wrath of God. 
Jesus realized that, 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 that he was um, sent to demonstrate and reveal to us God's saving purpose, but Jesus also came to experience for us the judgment of God. And he knew what he was talking about because of Jesus. He speaks of the, the darkness that is being separated from God forever. They will be cast into outer darkness. He speaks of the fiery furnace that, that, that we will be, uh, that those who don't know God will be sent to. He speaks of weeping and gnashing of teeth. He speaks of everlasting punishment. He speaks of being condemned to hell in its fire. So this isn't something that Paul sort of made up. This is something that is rooted in the work of Christ and the teaching of Christ. And so probably some of our heads, we think, well, why? Why is there a judgment? Why do we talk about these things? Why is that an encouragement to people that are suffering and are afflicting? Well, it tells us something about our God. He is a just God. He is a righteous God. After all, he says it's only just for God to act in his justice and to repay the wicked and to reward the righteous. It's what we would expect, is it not? It's a, it, we, we all rail ourselves. We said this last week. We rail ourselves with injustice. We rail at it what we see. We, we, we see things in the news. We read about things and we say, that's not fair. Or I hope they get justice or something happens to us. Some of you have experienced incredible injustices and you don't just hope that it will be washed under the table, do you? Swept under the rug. You're hoping for things to may be made right. You're longing for that day when justice will be prevail, when the true facts will be made known and you will be vindicated. So it's, in, it's inherent in us as those who have been created in the image of God to also seek for justice. And so God is just. God is righteous. So it's only right that at some point God will judge this world. Jeremiah says, You have all wisdom and do great and mighty miracles. You see the conduct of all people and you give to them what they deserve. This is our God and this is what we expect. And while we might rail from that and hide from that, this is also though what we want. We want to get what is deserved. Job says the Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In his justice and great righteousness, he does not oppress. There's no mistake in God's righteousness. There is no mistake in God's justice. He is not unfair in the administration of that judges, justice. And so as we looked at last week, God is just. His righteousness is, or his judgment is righteous. It's what his character demands. It's what justice demands. It's what holiness demands. It's rooted in the perfect character and the holiness of God. And so when it describes God as taking justice or vengeance, it's only just for God to repay. Who would argue with that? We don't argue with justice, do we? We long for it. We want it. We we, we, we see the necessity of it. It's not our place to take vengeance. It's not our place to take justice in our own hands. It's to be left to God. Sinclair Ferguson writes, until I sense how great and glorious and holy God is. That's the first part of understanding the justice of God. Do I, do I have any comprehension of how great and glorious and holy God is? He says, when I have a sense of how great and glorious and holy God is and therefore how horrific my sin is, 
That's the next part in thinking this through. It's just no small thing to disregard God, to disobey God, to cast God into the wind, so to speak, to rebel, to ignore, to transgress. It's no small thing. So when we have a right view of God and when we have a right view of sin, then the absolute justice of God's condemnation will make sense to us or will at least come into a different light. If we don't have a sense of the character of God, if we don't have a sense of the magnitude of sin, then the judgment of God and the condemnation of God will remain a mystery to us. It's not this blanket judgment either. The Bible is very clear that it's specific. God will repay each person according to what they have done. Surely, the psalmist writes, you will repay all people according to what they have done. Solomon says, but we knew nothing about this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guard our, your life know it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? Or in another place, each one of us will give an account to God. It's very specific. That's why our, when we talked about our conscience, every one of our consciences is unique. But our conscience is like God's monitor placed in us. And when we stand before God, it's our conscience that will reveal the truth about us. So why judgment? Because God is just. Because his righteous character demands it. Secondly, Paul describes who will be judged. Next week, we'll look at who will be rewarded, but this week, we just land on who will be judged. And there's three sort of categories of people he describes. The first is a very specific category. He says, those who afflict you in verse 6 to repay with affliction those who afflict you. It's not going overboard. It's not going underboard. It's exact repayment for what has been done to you. And as we know, if you've read any books on martyrs throughout the years, um, martyrs throughout the last thousand years of the church and martyrs even before then, those who lost their lives because of their love for God, their commitment to God, their embracing of, a, uh, of the testimony of Jesus Christ, you'll realize that there have been people throughout this world and even to this day who are suffering horribly for their faith and are being afflicted in unimaginable ways. Some have been mistreated terribly. Others have been uh, cast out of their families and some have lost their jobs and their ability to make a living. Others have been thrown into prison. Some have even lost their lives. Some have been physically marred in ways that are beyond description. Some have had their reputations destroyed all because they have loved Christ, all because they have put their faith in the word of God. They have suffered affliction. And Jesus warns very carefully, he says, woe to you. It would be better to have a millstone wrapped around your neck and thrown into the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Or the psalmist in another place talks about the people of Israel and he says, when they were few in number of little account and sojourners in the land, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, touch not my anointed ones. God has an affection for his children. God has a love for his people. God has like a mother hen, a, a, the protective love of a father, affection for his people. 
He's aware of what you suffer. He's aware of what you endure. He's aware of the things that you face as you go to school or as you go to work or as you go to the hobbies that you're in or as you walk with your neighbors or all of those sorts of things. God is aware. It doesn't escape his notice. Even though you might not be able to lift your eyes to him, his eyes are looking down upon you. And he says that I will afflict with affliction those who have afflicted you. That's a very specific category, but then he broadens it to encompass the rest of humankind who reject him. And he says there that he will punish those who do not know God. Those who don't have a relationship with God, those who have lived their life outside of the context of God, guiding, directing, instructing, in Galatians, the Christians were described this way. It says, formerly, when you do not know, did not know God, you were formerly enslaved. And he described the way that they lived. They, they lived without regard for God's laws. They lived without with God, regard for God's revelation. They lived without the, with, with ignoring the knowledge that God had placed in their heart of what was right and wrong. They did not know God, and it showed in the way that they lived their lives. Abraham was concerned about a certain king, Abimelech, and how he might treat his wife. And so he lied about his wife and said he was his sister because he thought that Abraham had no fear of God. In other words, the, he had no knowledge of God to guide and direct his behaviors. He just did what he wanted. He just lived how he wanted. That's what it means to not know God. God is not hiding. There are just some people who don't look for him. Like the men in Athens, they had a, a god for an idol set up for an unknown god. They didn't really want to know that god. They just wanted to cover all of their bases. And so Paul reminded them of the reality of that god whom they called an unknown god. They said, he, he said, he's the god who made heaven and earth. He's the god to whom you owe your existence. In him you live and move and have your being. He's the god that determined the exact time and place that you might live so that you might find him. And if you seek him, you will find him. He's the god that's not far away. He's the god that's very near. You're just not looking for him. You just don't want to find him. Well, let me tell you about your ignorance. This is that god. There was a pharaoh that followed the 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 uh, the Pharaoh of Joseph. And when Joseph was in, uh, they had the famine, remember, and Joseph knew that there were seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And then at some point, Joseph died. And it describes the next Pharaoh that came in his place. And he was the Pharaoh that was over the Israelites when they were slaves. And Moses and Aaron come and speak to him and they say, this is what God commands. And he says, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Did he not know history? Did he not know about the history of his own land? Did he not give a rip about it? He didn't care about it. His ignorance was a culpable ignorance. Some people simply refuse to know God. In Psalm 14.1, it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And as a result, they live as though there is no God. Others profess to know God, but their lies betray that profession. They act as though they know God, but their lives are anything but models of knowing God. In 
Titus, it says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for every good work. They're one thing in front of one group and a completely another thing in front of other people. There's no consistency in their character. Their lives and their actions don't match with what they say about God. They don't know God. Others profess to know God, but their lives betray it. it um, uh, Jesus speaks of a group of people. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many right things in your name? They act and lived as though they knew God. But he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Others are presented with evidence of God, in, which is an invitation to know God, and they look the other way. They refuse to have a relationship with God. We, we talked about this so often here. There's, God has revealed himself in the world around us, has he not? Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pour forth speech, and night reveals knowledge. It's like creation talks to us. Look at me. Who made me? Look at my design. Do you understand that? Look at the beauty. Do you know where that comes from? Look at the power that maintains it. Do you know whose power that is? And we turn and walk away and we say, wow, that came from slime somewhere. The evidence of God in creation is all around us, and yet people refuse to find God there. Romans 1 also makes this point. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who, know, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They hold it down. There's an inkling in their heart that there is a God, but they, the, the implications of that, they're fearful of them, they're afraid of that, or they want to keep living their lives, and so they suppress that truth. They hold it down. They keep it underfoot so it doesn't affect them. And Paul goes on and says, but what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Well, where? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Jeremiah says they reject or they suppress the, you, you live in a world of deception. In their deception, they refuse to know me. Loved ones, God has made himself known. He's made himself known in the world around us. He's made himself known in the Bible. He's made himself known in Jesus Christ. He's made himself known in us in the sense that we are made in the image of God, although it's marred and, and it's, it's not what it once was, but it will be what it was intended to be one day. So we know that there is a God because we think divine or we think about eternity. We, we, we think about righteousness and justice. So God has revealed himself to us. He's not hiding, but they refuse to know God. And then he says in a second place, and on those who refuse to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the second one. Those who refuse to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I was thinking that thing, you know, it's one thing to reject the knowledge of God. It's one thing to look at the world around us and say, there's no God that made that. I don't believe that stuff. 
There's no power there. There's no might there. There's no creativity there. It's all chance. It's all accident. It's just the survival of the fittest. That explains everything I see. It's one thing to look at all that and say there is no God. It's entirely another thing to know the revelation of Christ and disobey it. To hear the gospel, the good news of salvation, the glory of Christ revealed, and then to deny him. To know the gospel and reject it. To hear about Christ and his love and his sacrifice and his life. To know that we ought to put our faith in Jesus Christ and say, nah, not for me. That's a terrible thing. Hebrews says, it's one thing to go on sinning, or for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has proclaimed the blood of the covenant or profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The gospel is not a take-it-or-leave-it thing. We're commanded to obey the gospel. To those who are by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Paul notes of some that they have not all obeyed the gospel. There it is again. They have not all obeyed the call to repentance. But others, he says, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. In another place, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. Simply means they put their trust in it. They believed that Jesus was who he said he was. They believed he was the Lord of this world and therefore the Lord of their life and they submitted their life to him. What was the ministry of Jesus characterized? It was characterized by him coming into this world. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's not an option. You must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. And so he talks about the when of judgment, when Jesus Christ is revealed. He talks about the why of judgment, because God is a righteous, just God. He cannot be anything other than righteous and just. He talks about the who of God's judgment. Who will receive this punishment? Those that have afflicted the followers of Jesus Christ, those who don't know God, and those who don't obey the truth. And then how? With affliction is the first thing that he says in verse 6. That's justice. It's not vengeance. It's not anger. It's justice. 
Judgment will be fair. It will be no more than we would deserve, and it's not less than we deserve. It will be fair. When it says inflicting vengeance, it simply means he will uphold justice. And then the difficult words. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. The word eternal, alon, or aeon, sorry, is a period of undefined length, age long. It's the same word that is also used to describe eternal life. So just as eternal life is an undescribed period of time, so in eternal destruction is an undescribed period of time. The words used over 75 times in the or 75 times in the New Testament, 72 of them refer to a time of endless duration. So there's no mistake about this. This is not annihilation. This is endless destruction. And how do we understand this word destruction? Well, it's a word which means ruin or destruction. It's not annihilation. What is emphasized here is the loss of everything that gives joy and meaning and purpose to life. It's the opposite of eternal life. It's the kind of thing that Jesus describes as being outer darkness or fire that never goes out or a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place where there's no escape, where there's no relief. I think most of the descriptions of hell are metaphorical, not necessarily literal, and they're metaphorical, and metaphors are used to describe something, some things that are indescribable. And so Jesus uses metaphor to help us realize that what he's describing is worse than what we can imagine in our minds to be ever separated from God. I do understand why some try and make a case for universalism and even why some in the Christian context are trying to make a case for annihilation. And I can sympathize with people like John Stott who writes on everlasting punishment. He says, emotionally, I find the concept intolerable. I feel that sentiment. Hell is never made for humans. It was made for the devil and his angels, Jesus tells us. Humans were made for fellowship with God, for intimacy with God. The fact that God would banish people that were made for intimacy with him to endure eternal destruction with no end of escape should fill us with horror. And then he further illustrates that a little bit more. He says, away from the presence of God. That, that, that's been in my head for the last two weeks. And frankly, it, it's horrifying to me. We live in the atmosphere of the presence of God. In him, we live and move and have our being. Every time we walk out into the world here, we see the presence of God. As he, you know, I, I was out in my boat um, and when I'm out on my boat, I'm usually out early in the morning and I see a sunrise or I'm up late at night and I see a, a, a beautiful sunset and I, I see the glory of God and the presence of God in that sunset. When you go for a walk or you're out in your garden and you see the flowers, you're, that's the presence of God. His power is maintaining that when we get rain in the middle of July. But we understand that the rain is God's presence. It's his, his provision. It's his providential care for us. And so the rain is an, a witness of the presence of God. 
We have the Spirit of God, and we'll see this in a couple of weeks, that it's the Spirit of God that is now restraining the principle of lawlessness. And when that restraint is removed or when, the, when that is taken out of the way, lawlessness will go nuts in this world. And so the presence of God is a restraining presence right now. And so to be away from the presence of God is unimaginable. It's horrifying. I remember reading a number of years ago, and it sticks in my head, when Cain was kicked out of the Garden of Eden and an angel was sent there, and it says, and Cain went out from the presence of God. I can't fathom that. It scares me to death, actually. But in eternity spent away from the presence of God and away from the glory of his might, we witness the glory of God's might on a daily basis. We see it again in creation. We see it in his invisible attributes that maintain this world in its place. But you know, one of the most profound ways we see the glory of his might is in salvation. Isn't that a demonstration of the power of God in getting somebody that's in darkness, grabbing them, and in the grace and mercy and work of Christ, pulling them out of the kingdom of darkness and placing them in the kingdom of light, is that not a demonstration of the power of his might? I think it's a way of saying there's no salvation in the place of eternal ruin. It's a real place. We can't avoid that. It's described in scripture again and again and again. We, we can't chop up our Bibles and take out the pieces of it that we don't like and hang on to the pieces of we like. What kind of a Bible is that? And who determines what we chop out? And who determines what we leave in? No, loved ones, this is the word of God, the true word of God from beginning to end. Things that are easy and things that are difficult. But while it's true, there is a coming judgment while it's true, we know who will be judged. While it's true, we know what that judgment entails. There's one important factor, which is the most important factor of all, that there is a way of salvation. There's a way to find eternal life. There's a path that God has provided, and that path is through Jesus Christ. There's an amazing verse in the book of Micah. You know, we sometimes look at the Old Testament and people say, well, God's just a God of wrath. He's not. The prophet Micah says, who is a pardoning God like you? Who is a God like you who pardons iniquities and passes over transgressions? This is what God does and he does it because he's just. He doesn't just sweep our transgressions under the carpet. He has laid them on Christ, the full justice of God, the righteous character of God. The judgment of God is not sort of forgotten when it comes to us if we put our faith in Christ. It was born by Christ. And this is why the, the cross is such an amazing thing. And in fact, the cross is a demonstration, really, of the reality of hell, that Christ experienced what Paul is talking about here. We know that he experienced six hours of outer darkness. We know that he experienced suffering and affliction. We know that he experienced being forsaken by God, away from the presence of God and the power of his might for a period of time. Christ experienced this eternal destruction away from the presence of God. God, so we would not have to. Oh, it's such an easy thing for us. There's nothing we have to do. 
There's nothing we can do but look to Jesus Christ and be saved. God has not left us without hope. He's given us Jesus Christ. And if we fix our eyes on Jesus, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is God and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Trust Jesus today. Take the path of salvation. Know that you are secure forever, not only in this age, but in the ages to come. Father, we thank you for your word today. I thank you for the truth of your word. There are things that we don't want to hear, but we need to hear. And I thank you that you are a just God. I thank you that you are a righteous God. I don't fully understand or comprehend what all of that means. But there's something in me that resonates and says, thank you that you are. Thank you that you don't live up to some external standard, but you are the standard of righteousness. You are the standard of perfection. You are the standard of holiness. And thank you that you don't make exceptions to that. I pray, Father, that as we wrestle through what we've heard this morning, some of these texts, maybe what we've sung, maybe some of the testimonies, they, they will stir within us a desire to know you, maybe for the first time. As we've just heard the gospel in so short a way this morning that you might say and prompt some to say, I need to trust that, I need to obey that. And Father, that there might yet be rejoicing in heaven because some, one, two, three, that are here or that are listening said, I want to believe the gospel. I'm going to get to know God. Oh, Spirit of God, work in our hearts and lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.